Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Security Repo Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting episode. We're going to be focusing on offensive security, and we have a great guest with us here, which is Eric Cabetas. Now, Eric has been hacking apps since the early 2000s. He's previously worked on big consulting companies, software vendors, and even ran an e-commerce security team for over three years. In 2011, Eric founded Sec to bring together an amazing hackers to kick butt for the Silicon Valley and New York City. Since then, Include Sec team has performed at thousands of assessments in over 35 language for some of the largest companies and leading tech platforms in the US. And outside of his day job, Eric has won a number of ethical hacking contests, including Defcon Capture the Flag, which is one of the biggest ones that there is. So I'm interested to kind of finding more about 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 that. But with the bio out the way, Eric, welcome to the show and thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I kind of just want to jump straight into it. Um, it's interesting you bill your company as are offering offensive security. And you're making a distinction between that and pen testing. Um, hope you could just start us out by explaining what is the difference between offensive, which most people I think would immediately think red teaming exercise versus pen testing. And what, what is the difference? Sure, absolutely. Um this is a kind of this whole concept of like what what are the things that people do uh, in in assessment activities, assurance activities. Uh, this has been on my mind uh, for quite a bit. And it's one of our reasons our our industry just still kind of although we've been doing this stuff 20, 30 years, it still feels a little immature because if you tell somebody, oh, let's have a pen test, that actually has more than one meaning. Uh, it's not well defined. So for, for us at InclusSec, uh, basically we're a bunch of like awesome senior expert hackers. And when you have folks like that and our clients bring us every type of technology under the sun, we could have an Electron app, a web app, a mobile app, uh, a kernel driver, uh, an IoT platform. It's literally, literally every type of technology uh, we've done. Um, well, not every type, but the majority, uh, let's say that. So when you have that much variety, there's not not every type of activity is applicable to every platform, right? Like I can't do static analysis on a platform where there are no static analysis uh, tooling, whether open source or commercial. So either I make my own or I just don't do static analysis. So it depends on each one. Like uh, for instance, we did a we learned how to hack uh, TiVo apps. Um, there is nothing much you can do with that uh, because there's no tooling, there's nothing out there. So you have to create everything from scratch and then you, everything is mapped to something that exists before it. So how do you hack a mobile app? Um, you you, you, you kind of hook it up to burp over the network proxy and you figure out a workflow to do that. So we try and map everything to other things. How do you hack a native app like a C, C++ server? Uh, well, you write a lot of fuzzers. Uh, that's one way of doing it. So all of these different tasks, all of these different activities, I call just generally assessment activities for the end goal of assurance. So we might write custom fuzzers, custom static analysis tools. We might write dynamic tracers that check memory and inspect things. Um, for a fuzzing platform, we might write crash binning tools. Um, and all of these are kind of find, you know, find vulnerability type tools. Uh, we may also write some custom exploit vulnerability tools. So if we're on an engagement and we find a type of a vulnerability and there's hundreds and hundreds of instances, we'll automate 
the exploitation of that as much as possible. And those are all custom things. So all of these custom tooling, whatever it may be, um, I call that just generally offensive stuff. It's not necessarily like in in the vein of uh, the, the pen testing, um, but it's it might be related. So our, our industry doesn't have good definitions around these things. So hence, I just generally call it offensive or uh, assessment activities for assurance. It, it it does make sense, and and I do and I do kind of agree that there is. Uh, we don't have solid definitions, but we seem to have a lot of acronyms. You know, a lot of the marketing companies like to come up with 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 different types of of titles and labels. But in terms of broad reaching the d- definitions that people understand, then yeah, I I do think that we're we're a little bit lacking uh, in that sense. I, I like to say that the RSA conference is where acronyms are born. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, look, you, you've been involved in security for a while now, and I'm going to ask a question. Um, and this this uh, this question could probably take us for the rest of the podcast, but we'll we'll see where we'll see where it goes. But you've done tens of thousands, well, thousands of assessments uh, or audits of, of offensive security, uh, and, and I'm curious to know. You know, are there surprising findings that you regularly come across? Like, is is there something that you know people may think that that you know that, that I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to ask is there fruitful things that you try that regularly work that that are a little bit surprising? So we focus on software and applications. Uh, so we don't necessarily do the network pen testing and the red teaming much. Uh, it's it's very rare that we would do that type of stuff. Uh, so. The types of platforms that I mentioned earlier are, are you know, mobile web, uh, low level, high level, everything in between. Those are the types of things we do. And, you know, OWASP top 10 is a thing that I think, excuse me, I think pretty much does ring true. There was some debate. I remember having some debate with uh, Jeff and Dave uh, when they were maintainers of OWASP top 10, like eight, nine years ago. Um, I was saying, is OWASP top 10 the most frequently found things or is it the most impactful found things or is it a mix of the two? It's it's the impact and the frequency. And they actually had different definitions. Even, even though both these men maintained uh, OWASP, uh, they actually had different definitions when I asked them individually. Um, but for me, uh, the OWASP top 10, on, at least on the website, is is pretty aligned with the top things that we're finding. Yeah, authorization problems are probably uh, the number one thing we're finding, and that's in the OWASP top ten, top three. Um, not, not finding is injection problems, uh, especially SQL injection, anywhere near as much as they used to, and that's why, like, I think they've fallen from like number one to number eight or something on the OWASP, OWASP top ten. So, I, I think at least on the web side of things, things are generally aligned to that. Um, but, you know, like one a project we did in December uh, was look at a network appliance and that network appliance had a UDP server on it. And, you know, that it didn't really have any web things applicable to it, but we found hundreds of memory corruption buffer overflow type uh, concerns with it. So it really just depends on the tech stack of the component that we're looking at. There's nothing that I would say is across the board exactly the same. Um, so for something that's like a native server like that, more memory corruption. For something that's more web, I think authorization is probably our number one. It sounds uh, 
very situational is, is and that gets back to your, I think the main premise of offensive security versus here's a box of pen test and we're going to apply this and hope that you fit this model. Um, it's, it reminds me of something we were talking about recently um, internally, false positive versus false negative, looking for the wrong thing versus missing alerts for the wrong thing, um, trying to apply the wrong model to the wrong wrong box. Uh, in a previous conversation, actually, um, you had mentioned a term uh, around just these generic security assessments and generic pen testing, the decline of utility, which I, I really liked uh, as, as a term. I was hoping you could maybe explain in context, like, what did you mean by that? Like, what, what do you mean there's a decline in utility of security assessments going on out there that you're, that you're witnessing? So a lot, most of our clients are B2B type companies, whether they make some SaaS platform um, or whether they make like some Soho networking device for a, a small business. Uh, they're mostly making software for other businesses. And the reason why they're doing security assessments, pen testing, whatever you want to call it, are primarily for to meet some sort of business need. So it might be compliance like PCI DSS. It might be regulatory requirements uh, from the SEC, you know, you know financial, um, or maybe federal like CISA is putting out new things. There's new executive orders. So maybe, maybe it's regulatory. Um, so... And then maybe it's contractual obligations, right? So uh, I have a partner, um, let's say, you know, um, sp you're making a, an app that integrates into Spotify or Meta's, um, you know, Facebook enterprise platform, or you're making some app that fits into one of these things, you have to meet the security obligations. So when you're doing all of these things, most of the obligations just say, and this goes back to the definitions, you must have a pen test. They, they just generically state something like that. Um, and when you, and, and that that's important because when these things were first created uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, nobody was doing that. So now the, they bring this concept to baseline the industry and say, all right, at least people are doing something, but they don't evolve it. They don't mature it from that. And it's just like still says the same language from 20 years ago and it's not been adjusted in any way. So what happens when, when that happens is you've got a great variety of talent and execution in the, the pen testing space. So you've got not just the seniority, uh, seniority and experience of the individuals on the team, um, but you've got the methodologies that they use or the, the firm where they work uses. Uh, they've got the specific technologies that they use. So there's like all these different layers that pen tests from company A could be completely different from pen tests from company B. But if company A has all of these things, they have the maturity, they have the automation, they have uh, all sorts of talent, what should happen is they find lots of security concerns, right? Like, and that should mean that the assurance you have of that platform is higher. Um, now, if company B doesn't have all those things, they have junior people that are a year out of school, haven't really done this professionally, then it logically states that those folks won't find as much. Um, and maybe they're at a, t a team that doesn't have a mature methodology and doesn't is not aided by technology well. So they're individually now finding well within a framework that's not going to let them find much. Um, so that's that's the big difference. Uh, so I obviously 
I think we're a little bit more like company A. Some of our competitors are a little bit like more company B. But what if the costs are 2x different, what are companies going to go with? They're going to go with company B uh, because that meets their obligation of like, oh, well, I, I meet the this obligation for my compliance. So the utility of this assurance like activity that we do, pen testing, is being lowered across the board in the industry. And I really feel that all of the compliance and regulations need to be updated um, to bring the industry back up. So we need, we're in the same boat 10, 20 years ago. Nobody was doing pen tests. Okay, now people are doing pen tests. Well, everyone's doing bad pen tests now, so we need to do good pen tests. Instead of bring the whole industry down, we need to bring it back up again. That's my personal opinion. It's a lot of sense. If, if you're chasing, it's, it's like um, the uh, Dora metrics. If you're chasing the Dora metrics in DevOps just to chase them, just because you think, hey, that's going to make me awesome. If I if I can make the, like, it, it will improve things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to, I need to fix my organization from the ground up. I need to actually improve my security. So that's an interesting conversation mm -hmm. of, like, I'm checking a box versus I'm actually working to improve my security, which eventually will check the box. And all of this yeah. stuff is kind of discussed in economics game theory, right? Like, why mm -hmm. is someone going to do this? What is your motivation for doing it? Mm -hmm. If it's extra cost and extra effort, why would you do it? So we need yeah. to change the game to really restate there is a objective reason why you need to have a good assurance on your platforms and not just like a generic uh, vulnerability scan from some teenagers, uh, which is literally <laughs> what, what some people are doing. Uh, it, it is really funny, you know, the, the checkbox thing is you can really tell the difference between a lot of conferences is when, you know, I've been on the, the booth duty before of, of vendors and, you know, people come to you and they ask you what you do and then they bring out their checklist and it's like, well, well what, what box does this literally tick in this? Well, it doesn't tick anything because we're on the kind of bleeding edge of, oh, then not interested. <laughs> like, like, it's all about ins cyber insurance. It's all about meeting the policy requirements. It's about making sure that if they get hacked, they can go, well, we ticked all the boxes, you know, like I can keep my job. Um, but enough rambling about that. I, I, I want to ask a hard question now. Uh, how do we improve it? If you said that, you know, we're, we're, we've gone down, like what, how do we get this assurance? What, what are the things? Is it going to be legislation? Is it uh, going to be an industry trend change? W you know, will people finally get sick of having these breaches? What, 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 how do we do it? And why will we do it? Yeah, uh, happy to address that. <laughs> I, th I think I want to start with the something you mentioned at the end there, how do we address these breaches? Because the current state of everything that I'm talking about is yielded from that. Uh, so if you don't, elevate all of the assurance, then you're just going to have constant breaches, right? Like you have to really mm -hmm. bring that up. Um, why did solar winds happen? You know, because perhaps they weren't doing the right assessment activities. And if they were, then that wouldn't have happened. Um, so how do we fix it? Legislation? I think that is part of it, unfortunately. And, and I hate uh, to have heavy handed kind of legislation, but if we don't, and I've heard rumors that there are going to be possibly executive orders um, from the U.S. government that say, like, that mandate things like memory-safe languages being incorporated into software. Um, as far as if you want to sell it to the U.S. government, which is the largest yeah. purchaser of software in the world, then you have to use a memory-safe language. So if that happens, that would change the game. Uh, but 
each of these compliance and regulations, the common ones, SOC 2 Type 2, PCI DSS, all of the HIPAA, all of these things that you hear all the time, they need to have the language changed. They need to decide, okay, we've been, we're, we've been here a long time, decades now, time to elevate things. And unless they do that, then it's not going to happen. And it's the constant battle because all of the, the people that need to meet these compliance requirements are like, oh, it's more time and effort and it's going to increase the, the cost to, our, to, to maintain and create uh, our technology. And we have to pass that cost on to consumers. So I, I think, and I just pitched this uh, last week on LinkedIn, I really think like CISA and some of these big governmental organizations need to put out more. Um, it's like right now, the stuff that they're putting out is, is just uh, general guidance. Like, oh, here's some things in general. I think they need to like do some big moves like, hey, here is the guide to migrating your CNC++ app to Rust. And here we're going to sponsor... All, all the we're going to make a contest on uh, technology to innovate and uh, make it easier to port to memory safe languages your native applications, right? So if they if they had more contests and they they were able to give grants to to create technologies that make all this easier, then everything's going to be easier, right? Like you want to minimize the cost and effort for companies, make make the safest path, cheapest path, and simple. Um, and I think it can be done. It just takes a very particular type of strategy that so far I've not seen the U.S. government or other large organizations in the world do. Yeah. Well, I often say that the Log4j happened one year too soon because that year the SBOM um, executive order was, was put in place. But it hadn't had enough time for, for it to kind of take into effect and it would have been interesting or you know i guess we will have another log4j at some point and then it'll be interesting to know because the chaos that ensued after that of trying to figure out who was vulnerable and through what paths um you know it was hard for us as a vendor to assure people that we weren't you know that we weren't affected and that, that it was just really hard so the legislation could have had a big impact on that you know but it, it all just depends and it was too soon to kind of tell so it didn't have that impact but uh, I, I am curious, and I do agree with you of what you said too, that some form of legislation you know, needs this. It's, it's hard to imagine that people will make this change uh, on their own. Before before we move on, I just want to uh, double tap on, on one thing that you keep saying. I have this great strategy of when I don't know something, uh, I always phrase it as, well, maybe our audiences don't know what you mean. So maybe our audiences don't know what you mean when you talk about memory-safe applications. What are memory-safe applications? <laughs> Sure. Um, I, I think that the term I was using was memory safe languages. Um, so no worries. Uh, so when you have these more native type of applications, uh, like uh, desktop client applications of Windows written in C++ or servers that run on Linux, Windows uh, written in C quite often, these languages um, are vulnerable and, and web browsers, uh, probably the most common application that people know that it's a native app. Uh, these languages are, are vulnerable to memory trespass or memory corruption type of vulnerabilities. Um, and it's particularly because they're written in these languages, um, C and C++, uh, assembly, things like that. These languages are very powerful and they allow the programmers to make performant and very fast code. But the way that they do that is by allowing the programmer to specify exactly how to move memory around which is very unsafe and allows for more vulnerabilities. Uh, 
So if you use a programming language like C Sharp, Java, or Go, Rust, any of these languages uh, don't allow that to happen. And so they're, they're safe from this whole class of vulnerabilities. Now, it's a major class of vulnerabilities because we see from Google, Mozilla, and um, uh, Microsoft that 70% of their vulnerabilities in their browsers are memory corruption vulnerabilities. So just if, if any of these browsers were, went from C and C++ to Rust, that would save 70% of all the known vulnerabilities. It would just gone. They'd be gone by just changing the language. Now, the result of that may be slower software. So we've developed now, Rust, I think, is the, the prototypical example of this, memory-safe languages that are still performant enough. So it's so close to C and C++ in terms of speed and performance, but yet it's memory-safe. So you can rewrite, it would be a heck of an effort, but you could rewrite a, a web browser in Rust and you couldn't exploit buffer overflows in it. And that's super important. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Linux core right now is uh, Rust is taking a more dominant place and at Ruster R. Um, I just watched an interview with Linus a couple weeks ago and him basically saying, I don't know if this is the right language, but we can't stay in the past. And it's basically getting harder and harder to find C programmers. There's a reason for that. Like the assembly is amazing, but wow, it's a nightmare to program. Uh, and there's so many things you can do wrong in it. Um, love this. We, we keep talking about languages all day. I love this stuff. I, I think eventually the world's <laughs> going to say, we're going to do TypeScript. That's it, period. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's that. Call me wrong in 20 years. <laughs> but uh, I do want to talk about something again in a 20 year time frame because we're coming up um, on the anniversary, or actually, we're past the anniversary of you winning um, the DEF CON CTF back in 2003. Uh, <laughs> Folks that don't want to go out and do the Google search, maybe you can just give us the quick high level. What was that CTF all about? Like, how did you get involved? Just give us that story. Kind of like sure. um, on a dime here. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so for for those that haven't run across them, uh, CTFs or Capture the Flag contests are uh, kind of public legal hacking contests, and uh, there's different styles of them. Um, some of them are like pick and choose your targets. Some of them are called attack defense. Um, so despite the style, uh, the end goal is that there's usually some type of software that, that you want to attack. Uh, sometimes there's a little network stuff uh, mixed in. And you want to create uh, find vulnerabilities, create exploits, use them. Um, and it's trying to emulate, uh, it's kind of like the Hacker Olympics, essentially. It's trying to emulate a whole bunch of different types of hacking um, that you might see in the wild. Uh, in a contrived period. And DEF CON CTF is kind of the biggest of this type of contest. Um, it's been around the longest. It was kind of the first major CTF. Um, and yes, I was very lucky to uh, run with my team uh, Anomaly back in 2003. And we ended up winning DEF CON CTF. Uh, and quite often the DEF CON CTF changes operating systems. So one year it might be Windows, next year it might be... Um, Linux and it changes quite often. Uh, even one year, they had a completely custom operating system, 100% custom that had never been seen before. So uh, the year I played, the operating system we used was called OpenBSD 3.0, um, and so we had to attack uh, some native services on that, and then there were some custom services running on that, um, and it was an attack defense. So we had a virtual machine that we set up. People attacked us, and we had to prevent the attacks but also attack other people. 
and uh, there were services checks to make sure that our system ran well and that the services were running well because we couldn't just shut everything down. So yeah, it was kind of uh, three days of mayhem and uh, fun fun hacking. Got very little sleep, uh, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and it really is the hacking Olympics. Some of the the top people in the industry have won Defcon CTF, um, and these days it's gotten so difficult. Like the the level of skill that you need to even enter it uh, is we're talking years and years of training. So you have kids that start in their teens and they don't start playing DEFCON CTF until they're 20 and they've been practicing for five years. And it's very crazy uh, just to see the level of competition of today. But thankfully, the organizers of these contests have understood that that happens and they've kind of created new ones. So there's one called the Open for All CTF and they've created different ones and different flavors to invite more people. So like, hey, this one's sands every year around just before Christmas. Uh, they do a, a really fun one. It's themed. It, it kind of has a gaming aspect to it. Um, so I really like the variety of CTFs that are out there these days and the, the fact that there's different levels. And it's not just uh, like 20 years ago. There's only like the hardest, craziest level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we actually we did a we did a CTF ourselves at uh, uh, at DefCon. Not participating, we ran the CTF in the AppSec Village. So a very like a much smaller the level that we're, the level difference we're talking about is kind of like a backyard cricket um, compared to like <laughs> the Olympic sports. But um, but it is it is great. I'm I'm amazed when I look at the CTFs how people because it's not so much about learning hacking or knowing skills. It's about being able to really think extremely creatively around around problems and uh and that's uh it's very it's very impressive what i was gonna ask you've been part of devcon then for a very long time and devcon today is the absolute industry standard um of of going there but how how have you seen kind of that environment change over the the last i guess 20 years and are you still kind of involved in devcon do you still go to devcon uh 20 years on yeah, um, so I've been to every DEFCON in Black Hat since 2002, except for 2020 and 2021 for pandemic. Uh, but I've been to all of them since then. Um, you know, I don't participate in CTFs uh, anymore myself these days, uh, but I still every year go around and talk to the organizers, whoever is organizing it at the time. Um, and usually the organizers are past winners. So it's, it's kind of a tradition that if you've won in the past or usually if you get top three, um, that that you can be an organizer in the future. Um, so yeah, every year I go and say hi to the organizers. I see what the teams are doing and what the challenges look like. Uh, so even though I don't participate myself, I still uh, check it out. Uh, I, I go see, you know, AppSec Village, I believe is five years old now. I, I stop by AppSec Village, uh, say hi the, to that crew and, Yes, I, I still very much participate every year, um, even though uh, I'm a little bit over the hill as far as hacking goes myself. I'm more of a manager these days. The great thing I find about the, the security environment, particularly offensive security, is that it's it's despite what people think, it's one of the most inclusive places where you you can really learn so much from everyone and people are willing to, to share that with you. And I, you know, I came into the security world uh, five years ago uh, after being a developer and you know like you petrified the first time you, you speak to people but every single time i have I, I found them all like so opening and welcoming and i think that's part of the culture that that was it pro- i think instilled in the community 
for a very long time. And I think that you're you're kind of probably part of of the movement in that and, and forming that. So it's it's great. And you're and you're, you're definitely not you're definitely not passing the hill on that. I, I must say, you, I'm sure you could kick most people's butt in a, in a, in a capture the flag today. <laughs> I, my what I what I say when I hire people today is uh, I, I look for people better than I was at my peak. Like that's kind of like the the level that I'm looking for when I hire at Include Security. Um, and yeah, I just uh, I, the 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 findings that I see, you know, all these all these folks find, I'm just like, wow, I would have never gotten that like just so, just so that's so off the off the cuff like crazy um so i i now live vicariously through my colleagues i'm uh, just like that guy's awesome that girl's awesome i love what they do let's let's go well that's, that's encouraging but at the same time it's a little intimidating from the outside like knowing that hey i got this thing i freely go participate in it sounds like i'd be welcome but it sounds like i'm gonna have no clue what to do and get my butt kicked like if I go yeah. try at like that level out of the gate. So what encouragement, like what, what advice would you give for someone who is like, I've never done a CTF. This sounds interesting, but wow, I don't want to go get shot down and feel terrible immediately. Of course. Like, of course. What, what, what would you suggest? So just, just like everything in life and, and uh, Mac was using the sports analogy earlier, you know, the backyard cricket to the, the Olympic level. I, I think that's a great analogy because you don't just walk up to the Olympics and go, Hey guys, uh, uh, can I join? Right? Like, uh, <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you, you start in kind of the intramural leagues, the beer leagues, the backyard leagues. And, and the equivalent of that, uh, is I, I feel is this concept called war games. Um, so you go online, you, uh, you know, Portswigger has, um, the security Academy, um, that that's great. There's Pentester lab. Um, there's, there's lots of, of war game platforms out there that allow you to do individual challenges. And quite often they give you, um, like a walkthrough of each individual thing. So it's more of a learning platform. Um, uh, if you want to go a little more traditional, there's a pull the plug, uh, the bandit war game, uh, they used to be called over the wire. And that was one of my first war games, like tw over 20 years ago, just kind of to learn Unix, Linux stuff and, and security uh, from that perspective. So I really love war games. They're individual. You do them at your own pace. And quite often they have uh, lessons built in with them. Um, and if you want to do more DIY, then do the ones without the lessons. So you can just kind of uh, try and figure things out yourself. And some mix between those two of the ones with lessons, the ones that you just do yourself. You'll you'll get to kind of a baseline level where you feel like, okay, now I can go do open for all CTF, which is kind of a more introductory welcome CTF. So it's definitely not, you know, anyone new to the industry, don't don't feel bad about you don't know anything. None of us knew anything when we joined. And it's just there's a lot more steps and in information available to you these days. I'm briefly interrupting this episode to talk about the security repos sponsor, GitGuardian. GitGuardian is a code security platform that specializes in detecting secrets, 
in your development workflows and also in your code repositories. Not only can GitGuardian bring to the surface all of those leaked secrets from way back in the history in your projects, but it can also let you know when systems have been breached by using their brand new Honey Token module. Honey Tokens are fake credentials that you can put in your environments and also in your third-party tools to know when they've been compromised. GitGuardian is free for all teams with less than 25 developers. You can sign up today at gitguardian.com. All right, back to the episode. But a general question, something that keeps popping up in, in various conversations. So uh, you might be aware that CISA um, has an open CTF, and that is their application process, um, which I think <laughs> is a really cool idea because you're going to get the best and brightest at people who want to do that. But is that applicable? Like, if you're really good at solving puzzles, what's the likelihood you want to go work for the government? Like, <laughs> it, are we using, I don't know, I have a really firm question around this, but what do you think about that, like, disconnect of like, hey, I love solving these puzzles. It reminds me of the Cicada um, 4044, those guys. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, it's great that you you have made the most complicated puzzle in the history of mankind, but what are you doing with that? Um, like, wh where is the CTF skill apply in real life? Yeah, um, I mean, solving puzzles as part of uh, interview challenges has, has been around for forever. I think, you know, back in World War II, people were doing that in the newspaper to, to recruit code breakers on, onto the Betchley Park and things like that. So th this concept's been around for a while. Um, now, would a person who's really good at solving technical problems be super happy working for CISA or, or a government or federal position? Uh, it really depends on the person uh, because if all you want to do is solve very deep technical problems, then maybe unless you're doing kind of like offensive capabilities development for some like NSA or CIA like branch, um, Unless you're doing that, you're probably not going to be doing all technical depth all day. Um, you know, if you're at some other agency like FDA, DOE, um, you're probably not doing that all day long. So it really depends on the personality of the person. Uh, but uh, is is it a valid kind of recruiting technique? And uh, I, I think so. Um, Silicon Valley has been doing it forever. If you used to drive up the 101... Um, in, a, in California, in Silicon Valley, and there used to be this uh, this number, and that's it. It was just a number on a billboard, and you had to know that that number was a URL, um, and then from the URL became like a little challenge, and that was an interview challenge. I think it was at Google. Well, look, we're we're coming to the end, and I and, and I want to be uh, conscious of your time, but I have some questions that I I ask everyone because I love the answers that we give. And I, I wanted to ask you, I was like, what, what is the best security advice that you would give uh, someone either wanting to get into security or maybe a, a business that's looking at kind of offensive security? What's the best piece of security advice that you would give them? And then afterwards, I'm going to ask you what the worst advice that you hear is, but we'll start with <laughs> the best. Sure. So um, you, you kind of gave two different directions there the the new person in security and, and the company looking to secure their their stuff so pick, uh, pick whatever one you want okay, just pick one, one whatever one you think is most relevant right. yeah. um, <laughs> i think i think we talked a bit about like people knew the industry so i'll go to the business side of things uh on the business side of things 
think about what uh, all of the business side uh, of, of what you do. So um, a, a challenge that I like to mention is uh, if you're a high frequency trading platform um, and you're not encrypting your connection to the stock exchange, uh, what is adding encryption do to that? It slows you down, which might lose you a million dollars a year because you're slower. So think think of business problems, security problems in the same world, and think of them always as a gray area. As a security professional, like I never say the word no to a company. Um, it's always yes, but um, oh, can I put a vulnerable ten year old instance of WordPress up and put our marketing site on it? Yes, but. Uh, you, you keep that separate from our infrastructure. You have a backup every day of it. You do a check to make sure it's not been defaced yet. So if there's some business reason for it and it's still a horrible security idea, you could still probably make it work. Um, but you just have to understand the ramifications of it. So do the yes, but on the security side. Think about security as, as a gradient uh, of value within providing a business. Um, and then if you're doing assessments, uh, you know, doing pen test type of assessments, think about what happens if you don't use uh, like a decent company. Um, so the end of your company or the, the destruction of a platform or the disclosure of, of PII, PHI of, of customers is, is a high impact worst case scenario that may happen. Um, so use your budget judiciously. Um, spend more when you really want to get that assurance um, and spend less when you don't. So I think, there you go. That's that's my statement for, for the businesses trying to work on security. I love these questions because you get different answers all the time. And uh, yeah, I and that's and the, the fact is we live in a world of reality where these things do impact. So from a security point of view, you could say no to everything and you have to do it the secure way, but you're going to come back a year later and the same problems will be there unless you've thought. Through yeah, or you won't have a job. Right. If you say no to absolutely everything, the business can't work and they'll just let go of you, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they need someone to fire when the, when the data breach happens. So that's, that's, that's always a good backup. Sometimes, no. Uh, data breaches are a very polarizing incident. Someone either gets yeah. fired or promoted. One of the two happens. Yeah, I, I, I watched a, one of the most interesting panel discussions I watched was with the the size of SolarWinds and the, the topic title was why weren't you fired? Um, and, uh, and and he was actually promoted. They didn't have a CISO uh, during the breach, but yeah, it, inter interesting. I digress. I, I have one last question because uh, I'm conscious sure. about your time, but what is the worst security practices uh, that you would, that, that you hear or that you think are kind of out there that people need to avoid? What's some of the, some of the worst practices that, that you hear? Um, I've, I've seen folks that come from kind of the general compliance and audit side of the house um, that want to transition into the security side. Uh, so I, I can think of one instance where I've seen somebody who was in charge of compliance at a company and then became their CISO. Um, they, they didn't change their mindset. The, the mantra in the industry is quite often you hear compliance is not security. Um, they are different problem sets and like really understanding that is is important. So be careful when you receive advice about security from somebody that only has a compliance mindset. Uh, I think that that's kind of where I'm going with that. Yeah, that kind of very cool. Beginning the conversation um, very nicely, actually. That if all you care <laughs> about is checking a box, then maybe yeah. you're not doing security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's very true. Hey, well, look, Eric, this has been a, a fascinating uh, episode, and your answers have been quite left field to, I think, what traditional speaking lines are. So I think it's quite good to to think about these things in a different way. So thank you for coming on. If our audience wants to follow you or follow Include Security, we're talking that you haven't been on social media pretty much ever, but how can they? How could they maybe follow what's happening at Include Security or even you of uh, podcasts or something that you're you're about? What's the best way? Uh, so include security uh, on Twitter, um, on Reddit, uh, on LinkedIn. Just literally search for include security. Uh, the website's includesecurity.com. Um, we post some blog posts uh, about industry things and technical topics. Uh, we try and post, uh, you know, at least once a quarter, if not more. Um, so yeah, I think those are good ways to find us. Uh, LinkedIn, if 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 you're on that, is just search include security. You'll find us. Um, but yeah, our team is, is, uh, all over the place, uh, as far as like, uh, technology specialty, uh, and, and it's kind of a motley crew of, of expert hackers. And I, I, I love that sort of stuff that allows us to bring interesting perspectives to the industry. Uh, to your point, I'm not towing the party line is because I'm just being honest about what I see in the industry and like the economic motivations. If you kind of break things down, um, yeah, may, maybe I can actually bring this to the larger industry at whole if I ever get to do a keynote at, at some uh, some conference uh, because these things, I think, need to be addressed for us to move forward together. Very cool. Well, I'll definitely come to that keynote for, for sure. But <laughs> look, I just want to final, final up and say, finish up and just say thank you for coming on. Uh, all the links to Include Security are going to be in the show notes for anyone listening that wants to try and find, so you can go down there. Dwayne, any final words before we hit the big red button? Uh, just want to say thanks very much for coming on uh, and, and being part of here. I don't think your ideas are that left field. I think they're just unsettling to people that have been in that compliance equals security box. And But it's good to unsettle that, that state of mind. So thanks very much. 